The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Learn how to eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Podcasting holds a strong allure for would-be media disruptors and visionaries. That must be true because it was in the New York Times just last week. And you know what? I guess it applies to us. Of course, the Main Street Vegan Show is a live radio show first, so we have one foot in tradition and another one in the future. But today, the show is going to be more like a podcast podcasters seem to have all the time in the world to really talk to their guests and draw them out. And today, luxuriously, there'll be just one guest and he's going to be a dandy. Hey, everybody. This is Victoria Moran, host of the Main Street Vegan Show. Thank you so much for taking this time to be with us today or tonight or whatever it may have made be for you. And this guest that I'm just really excited to be introducing you to is a new friend of mine, Justin Connor. Justin is an actor, writer, director, producer, and musician, best known from independent films including Resurrection Mary, The Problem, and In My Life, and TV shows like Six Feet Under, Monk, and Judging Amy. Justin wrote, directed, produced, starred in, and scored the music for his feature musical film, The Golden Age, which he shot in both California and India. As a musician, he released his critically acclaimed debut album, Kali Yuga, as well as the Golden Age soundtrack on his own record label, Wiley Pulse. Try to say that, record label, Wiley Pulse, and his forthcoming novel, A Day in the Lies, which follows the life of Maya O'Malley, the lead protagonist in the film. Justin, bless your heart, and welcome to the Main Street Vegan Program. Thank you so much for having me, my dear. Well, it is wonderful to be talking with you. The last time we did this, it was just you and me, and now it's you, me, and lots of friends. And 
I've already been telling people about your film. In fact, you know, today when, when we just connected, Jeff, our engineer, was like, I've seen it because Jeff's a big music fan. So it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but the genre we're talking about is something called mockumentary. And what is that? <laughs> um, I'd almost say it's rockumentary since it's a uh, rock mock documentary which is basically a faux documentary that's um you know and usually when we see it in media and film it's it's done for comedic effect but um this is almost a different genre than mockumentary or even rockumentary in the sense that it's part documentary it's part um self-autobiographical about my own life but there's elements of narrative interspersed so I think there was an element of me not only being drawn to documentaries, but also really intrigued by narratives. And I wanted to create sort of a hybrid genre of not really knowing what's real and what's fake, um, sort of as a satire for performance, if that makes sense. Well, what surprised me when I watched the trailer, I thought it was a documentary. So I <laughs> calling friends who were into music and saying, what do you know about this guy, Maya O'Malley? <laughs> I mean, I know that he's kind of esoteric, but he was also pretty big. Why have I never heard of him? They're like, I've never heard of him either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's funny. A lot of people who watch it do the same. They start Wikipedia and who's this Maya O'Malley guy? Because it's played as if he actually exists. And I think one of the subplots of the film is it's sort of a, satire on fame in a day and age where everyone's producing some creative work and wants to be known for it in, in that sort of way, I kind of went in the opposite direction. And instead of it being, you know, a story about Justin Connor, I wanted to make this kind of alter ego similar to, um, you know, Ziggy Stardust or Lady Gaga or some kind of like alter ego so that it was less about me and my story and was more about a reflective view of how we're all going through some of the themes that Maya goes through. So it was a little bit of trying to see if I could pull the wool over most people's eyes. And, and as a quick, funny aside, with Amazon Prime, where the film is available right now, and people are really responding to it, I tried to get um, Amazon's like clearance department to have it as a narrative, which it is, with a documentary style. And they were like, no, this is a documentary. So I think they were fooled or <laughs> so I'm in the documentary category. So I think that's kind of added to the um, intrigue or mystique. So I wasn't necessarily trying to dupe anybody with that stylistic device, but I, I feel like in this culture right now, either through news or YouTube or whatever, we all know what's real and what's fake with like famous actors as a narrative or people on their phones. And you know that it's real. So I was trying to play with that idea of, what is what, what is real and what's fake with the idea of Maya, the name of Maya, the character being sort of the illusion of the material world. So it's very spiritual. It's very musical. I love the music. Oh, my gosh. Thank it, you. It, it's as good as 70s music, and that's mm. a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm on the same boat. I still listen to all that stuff on vinyl. So oh, it, it's just, the, I mean, I've watched it twice now, and I very seldom watch films over again, but I'm probably going to be going for number three. So <laughs> when when people watch The Golden Age, and, and you'll see the story of, of this 
very unusual, uh, kind of reclusive, maybe rock star Maya O'Malley. And then he gets in trouble. He gets in trouble for saying things in the media that he shouldn't be saying. But the first thing that he says that gets him in trouble is that people shouldn't eat animals. So was that planned that that was going to be his first faux pas? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was written. I mean, the whole script was written and all the songs were written in a, in a way to tell the story throughout the film. But the first thing in terms of getting into hot water was the ahimsa angle in terms of nonviolence. I've been a vegetarian for years and I, after reading Srila Prabhupada's um, Science of Self-Realization, which is a series of <clears throat> interviews, he's one of my gurus from the East, about um, animal rights. Uh, you know, a lot of that was kind of lifted from a conversation he had with this um, Catholic bishop, I believe it was in Canada, talking about eating meat. And I was I was trying to inspire how Maya would say similar iterations about it. Because, you know, it's funny how we're in this culture we're talking about so many degradations of material life in terms of... Um, the environment and uh, how wacky this world has become. And one of the lines I think from the film is if, if our diet is, um, you know, if we're unable to see how our diet is creating some of these um, kind of karmic repercussions, you know, in a way that religion has failed to communicate thus far, I felt like maybe this was worth broaching. And, and I think that's where it came from. And, I, I, you know, I think in this day and age, especially ever since I made the film, if someone steps out of line with a particular philosophy or says the wrong thing and puts their foot in their mouth, the whole Internet just <laughs> caves in on them. So I thought it was um, kind of telling that I wrote this years ago. And now that's kind of coming to fruition in ways we see via Twitter and all that oh, jazz. It is. And it happens when people say the wrong thing. And it can happen when people say the right thing. Like exactly. In case. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I like that. So, yeah, we got to be pretty brave these days. So you have lots of fans for this film. And one of them, I have to ask, is Julian Lennon. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting story. Um, I met him years ago. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of his father and his music. And as many people are that approach him because he looks so much like his dad. And I remember approaching him and saying to him, look, I, you know, and I read the backstory with his dad was kind of tough on him and maybe there was some abandonment and such. And I walked up to him and I put my hand on his, uh, on his heart. And I said, look, my dad was a prick to me. I know your dad was a prick to you. I love this music. I'm sure people hit you up all the time, but I just want to let you know that I've been through the exact same. And, uh, if you need a brother, I got your back. And he kind of like perked up, like, you know, it kind of disarmed him a little bit, I think, because, you know, I, I don't think people can understand the wounds of trauma unless you've gone through it. And I think he's probably gone through his fair share. And, you know, probably people look at him like, oh, he's got it made. And his father probably left him some money or, you know, he's got it made. And it's like, you know, these wounds that we go through as a child, you know, they're hard to navigate and they're hard to understand unless you can reflectively convey that you've been through the same and you're kind of brothers by proxy of going through kind of our own karmic fires. So I just mm -hmm. wanted to let him, let him know that I saw him deeply as a son that maybe had wounds rather than the son of John Lennon. And ever since then, 
we had a nice connection and he, he's a very creative fellow and we've kept in touch and then I sent him my film and he really enjoyed it and he started uh you know mentioned it on social media and he's been a big big supporter of it and just a sweet guy you know Aww. it's like so, so, sometimes I think like people like him or people in the that we know that are known are in their own prison and cage and I think I tried to convey that with Maya and the story you know and kind of part of the film is like a satire on fame because I think sometimes these people are caught in their own wheel of samsara in some regard in terms of um, not being just seen as a human or a soul and fame has its own madness. And I'm not saying he's gone through that. I haven't discussed that with him, but I just wanted to let him know that I saw him beyond and through all that. If that mm. makes sense. Well, t tell us what samsara is for those who are not yogis. Sure, sure. Samsara is kind of like the cyclical wheel of material life where it's constant up and down and suffering and being attached to this um, material game of desires, attachment and name and fame and, um, you know, all these uh, desires outside of ourselves than, than resorting to the devotional path. And we keep coming back, according to the East, in these different incarnations, trying to get close to the devotional path. But the, the allure of Maya, which is the um, material potency of this world, is always trying to lure us away from our devotional path. So I, part of naming the character Maya, and, and, and it's funny, in the film, someone pointed this out to me, it's like, Maya doesn't touch anyone in the film. It's like it's unsure if he's even real or not, or if this is just like a metaphor character. And I'm like, ooh, I like that because the reason I named him that name was sort of like a spin on that same theme from the East of like, is he real? Like the illusion of the material world. So it's like here he is speaking the truth. When you talked about this earlier, about sometimes people get hopped on on online via Twitter and whatever for saying something bad, but also for speaking the truth. So I think it was important for me to tell this story, knowing that we're gonna that might piss off some people. Or like, what's this guy's deal? But you know, it's important to speak our truth, even if people you know want to hang us after. And there's an element of just owning that. Um, and not being afraid of that. But at the same time, then when it sets up later in the film where you realize he's been through the ringer, similar to what I was talking about with Julian Lennon, you kind of see that sometimes people are lashing out, not just because they got something to say the truthful, but that maybe they haven't resolved something from their own past. So that was kind of the setup for it, in addition to speaking my truth, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, Thinking more about Julian Lennon, I remember when John Lennon was still alive and he was married to Yoko and they had had their son and how devoted John Lennon was to this little boy because that was evidently the time in his life when he could do that, when he was able to be a dad and give himself to that. And earlier in his life, when, when Julian was born, it, you know, he was just in a different place. And I think so often how grateful I am that I didn't have my daughter until just after I'd turned 33. And I remember when I was pregnant and went to the doctor and I saw my chart and they'd stamped on it in great big letters, elderly prima gravita. And that meant old woman having her first baby. <laughs> but I was so grateful as she was growing up that I had been elderly uh, when she was born because I just don't think, I mean, and I, I wasn't 
perfect, you know, anyway, I don't think any parent um, can get through that without like, oh, gosh, I wish I'd done that particular thing differently. But there's something about timing mm-hmm. and, and being able to be open to to even fully love one's own child. So what does the timing have to do with the spiritual path? When did it come to you and would it have worked if it had been 10 years earlier? Oh, wow. Um, well, it's a slow track. First of all, that's such a sweet story about uh, your daughter. And I think that's part and parcel why I approached Julian about, uh, you know, I, I, you know what, what he went through. Because, you know, John Lennon was initially married and then that didn't work out. And then he fell in love with Yoko and then had this beautiful fatherhood with his son, Sean. And, you know, I think... I, from what I've read, it looked like Julian kind of got left by the wayside in some respects. So that's why I just really wanted to be there for him in that regard when I first met him. But in terms of the spiritual path, it's something that, you know, it's similar to the film. Uh, I met a girl who lived at the uh, Hare Krishna temple about 20 years ago. And she was a Hare Krishna. I'm like, oh, my God, what is this? And I remember taking me to the temple. I, I do similar iterations about this in the film. Like, oh, my God, what the hell is going on? Like, get me out of here. What is all this about? And because it, it was very jarring from someone who got raised Catholic in New England, just like, uh, yeah, I'm not sure I'm into this. But I was intrigued because of how devoted and resonant and just how much depth she had. And, you know, she talked about how they were all vegetarian. I'm like, okay, well, I'm a vegetarian. That makes sense. Oh, I like that. But it was extreme, you know, at first. So then she had me read this uh, book, The Bhagavad Gita, which was pretty um, life-changing and and, and kind of slowly unfolded from there. But it's funny that you mentioned the timing of it because even though this happened like 20 years ago where this came into my purview, and I've never been like a big religious person pound for pound like, um, like of a certain congregation or any particular devotional sect, I remember like... It's it's funny because I've been into this for 20 years, but it's it's such a slow migration because there's such resistance, even when you know the path that resonates so deep with you to fully embrace it. So it's it's it feels constantly like baby steps. But at the same time, I knew this was part of my path because every time I tried to disregard it or push it away, more devotees I would meet that would bring me back into the fold. So I think. The irony of it is people think once you find your devotional path, you just go running towards it. And some people do. And that's part of their karma to like just really sprint on it. But for me, it's I always got my eyes open a little wider than most. So I kind of was taking baby steps. And there's still elements of today where I'm doing the same. But this whole slow migration turned into reading more of the books, um, meeting this really amazing devotional artist named Shamarani, who was a, um, one of the first female disciples of Srila Prabhupada. I was a big Lennon and Harrison fan who were big uh, uh, fans of Srila Prabhupada, and Harrison kind of looked up to him as his own guru, and I read that book. And then one thing led to another, and Shamarani led me to my guru in India, as well as I've been introduced to the books and teachings of all their god brothers and associates. So it's so it's such a vast, magnanimous path of this Saraswat Gaudiya uh, mission from the east, and um, I'm really grateful for it. But it's so magnanimous and a light that it's hard to ingest it all because there's so many layers to it. So I'm kind of patient with myself. But the way I'm looking at the golden age and looking at my creative life hereafter 
is it was all really designed and created through Srila Prabhupada. I mean, people look at the film and they're like, oh, you wrote it, you directed it, you produced it, did the music, you performed it live, you did it all. And I'm like, well, sort of. I could I could go that route, but the way I feel now, because if you paid me like millions of dollars to make the film again, I don't think I ever could make The Golden Age, but it was something that had to be excised and had to be carried out. And I really feel like my gurus were almost like using me like a puppet to bring this to fruition and and my creative life hereafter and the songs I'm writing now as well as the book and the, the album soundtrack, it feels like the teachings emanated and inspired all of it and I just tried to frame it in a westernly way that can help bridge more westerners to this eastern path so I, it feels like on some level that's my dharma and fate in this lifetime at least for right now or in the uh, immediate interim or in the immediate future is trying to convey a way to be a bridge between both sides and using that kind of pop structure musically like we said those bands from the 70s and like harrison was starting to introduce is bringing that into the fold and using whatever talents I have to to preach this in a way that's not preachy, that can kind of pique the interest of a lot of Westerners, as there are so many, trying to find a deep, resonant, um, devotional path. So that's kind of where I'm at now, and I feel like a lot of what I do now is less about, like, hey, look what I did, and this jumping around and trying to get people to see me, and more like, I feel like it's more like a reflection of how deeply the teachings have really resonated with me. Mm. Well, I personally am really drawn to films that, that call on my spiritual nature. Like one that I watch every few years is this 1969 Franco Zeffrelli classic called Brother, Son, Sister, Moon about St. Francis and St. Clair. Hmm. And, and that comes from your original tradition and mine too. I was raised uh, Catholic um, in Kansas city, but the, the film, you know, it doesn't matter what the tradition is. You see somebody mm-hmm. who is transformed and then goes on to transform the world. And I can't think of anything more powerful or or more worth devoting two hours of my life to. Oh, my God. I love that. I'm going to have to check that one out. You have to remind me later for that one. Um, it's funny. Like, I think there's this perception with the devotional path whatever it is and like you said it's really irrespective of what theology or what someone's chanting or or how they're doing it i think we're moving into an era hence the name of the golden age the golden age i named it that the golden age of kali yuga which kali yuga is like deemed in the east of like uh the iron age or the polluted age where become attached to a lot of these things outside of ourselves in hopes that they'll bring happiness when they never they never will but within the golden age and it's around this time that we're starting that we're at it's actually started already but it's going to start hitting its full force a lot of people believe in like early 2030s but where it's like this spiritual reformation where we're shifting the parameters and paradigms of our lives and all the projections of what we thought would bring us happiness and the devotional path comes more into the fold either through chanting or um, mantra and you know reading different literature that feeds us so this path has like really transformed my life in a, in a lot of respects and i'm just i'm, I'm just humbled that um 
that it all kind of happened the way it did. And and the funny thing about this, Victoria, is like it, there's sort of this romantic vision of like, oh, I found my devotional path and I'm so blissful. It's almost like that's when like the anarthas, are, which are these impressions of the heart from previous lifetimes that we have to absolve, whether through family or ourselves or our ego, et cetera, kind of come into our purview. But we think that it's going to be this walk in the park. But really... I think the devotional path starts to come into the fold when we really address these old wounds. And we're taught in this society to like kind of run away from pain and feel more pleasure. But there's no real pleasure or enjoyment in the material world. It's as fleeting as pain is. Everything's temporary. So there's an element now that I'm kind of coming to terms with where it's like these pains that we go through are such great teachers. Um, and it's almost like when we're most broken is when we cry out for God, Krishna, whoever to, to help absolve this pain. And we don't want to go through this, that, that samsara word, that cyclical cycle of pains anymore. And we want to expand. So I think that's where the devotional path comes from for me. And in terms of having gone through so much pain, it's sort of like a skew on it now. And whereas before it was like, the relative and the absolute is what I often like to talk about with people because the relative of my youth it was a horror show that went on for decades in terms of this crazy, abusive divorce. Um, it, it was just insane. I go deeper to that in the film and certainly in the book. But really the absolute reflection of all that is how much this was all serving me. You know, it's like these pains and these wounds, that's what – Cut, that's where we cut our teeth. That's where we have the drive and the intestinal fortitude to like take on a project like this or share these insights with people. So I, I look at it differently now. And it's funny that we're even talking about this because yesterday, sorry, I hope I'm not digressing, but yesterday was the anniversary of my mom's birthday. He passed away in 2013. And my dad passed away two years ago on my mother's birthday. And when my mother passed away in 2013, she passed away on my father's birthday. Oh so, my goodness. And I've never heard anything like that. So the re what I think that was them leaving on each other's appearance day it, is what it reminded me of or what it was. It's like, oh, this is like a reinforcement of like understand the laws and nature to the extent you can of karma and that these wounds and these pains that you had to go through if you if if you were if you hadn't gone through these things, would you even have become the person you are and or being able to surrender or dedicate yourself to the devotional path that you even have? So where I'm at now is like, would I trade having gone through a, a horrible youth to forfeit who I've since become because of it? And mm -hmm. and the and the answer I tell everybody is, I would go through this ten more lifetimes if I had to even worse than it was to make sure that I, it brought me to the devotional path versus staying steeped in judgment mm -hmm. or anger and not being able to forgive per them. Perfect place for our break. <laughs> we'll be <laughs> back after these messages. Thank you.
Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Practical spirituality. Positive messages. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. I hope that you are enjoying this conversation with Justin Connor as much as I am. The film is The Golden Age, and you can find out more about Justin on um, his website, which is complex, so I'm going to put that uh, in the show notes. But he's TGA Film, like The Golden Age, on Facebook, and uh, Justin Connor Music, also on Facebook, and TGA Film on Instagram. So all over the place. And if you do go to our show notes at MainStreetVegan.net, you will get all the details about the films, the recordings, the books, etc., And uh, if you go to MainStreetVegan.net, check out what's over there, particularly Main Street Vegan Academy. If you've been listening for a while, you know about MSVA. We have been training vegan lifestyle coaches, educators, and entrepreneurs since 2012. We have over 500 graduates from 31 countries on six continents doing incredible things in the world. And now we are on Zoom. So that means you no longer have to get yourself to New York City and find a place to stay and figure out the subway. You can simply be in your own home and get this highly respected certification as a vegan lifestyle coach and educator. So check that out at MainStreetVegan.net. We have a new class starting February 21st, and you're not too late to enroll. It would be a pleasure to have you as part of the Academy family. So somebody else who's part of the Main Street Vegan family is our wonderful sponsor, Complement, the Buy Vegans for Vegans supplement that I take, my husband takes, my daughter takes, we're all thrilled about. And I really do feel so safe knowing that my already very good diet is complemented with essential vegan nutrients to be sure that some of those tough things that are pretty hard to get any other way than a supplement, vitamin B12, vitamin D3, the fully formed omega-3 fatty acids, and vitamin K2 are all in complement wonderful spray. You don't even have to swallow a pill. And then there are uh, complement plus, which are our capsules, and they have even some more nutrients that you can get as a vegan, certainly, but that might be just a little bit difficult. Things like iodine, magnesium, selenium. So do check them out at lovecompliment.com. 
com. And if in the discount box you put Main Street Vegan Plus, that's Main Street Vegan, all caps, run together, plus sign, you will save yourself some money and hopefully help yourself to greater health. And I do have one more announcement. I am so excited and it is perfectly in the vein uh, with what we're talking about today with Justin Connor. And that is that on Meet Out Day 2021, I am going to be working in tandem with Integral Yoga New York City and also Yoga Goes Vegan, another wonderful podcast for you to check out. In putting together the, um, I'm sorry, the the Yoga is Vegan podcast and our workshop, our all-day seminar on March 20th is Yoga Goes Vegan 2021. Because we figured, you know, when they had the first Earth Day, that changed things. People knew from this day forward, we're going to be thinking about the planet. And we're hoping that from this day forward, yogis are going to be thinking about veganism. Like, certainly become vegetarian. That's in the tradition. And come on, let's take Ahimsa all the way and go vegan. So it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful day. All kinds of fabulous speakers. So do check that out. I will put the link uh, in the the show notes. And otherwise, you can just Google uh, Integral Yoga and Yoga Goes Vegan, and uh, you'll find it. Hope you can be part of that day with us. And thank you for being part of this hour with us right now. I'm talking with filmmaker and musician Justin Connor, filmmaker, musician, and spiritual guy. So, uh, Justin, when you say that your path is something called bhakti, B-H-A-K-T-I, tell us what that means. Yeah, it's a devotional practice of yoga that um, is about surrendering um to Radha and Krishna and having them as sort of your guide and aim. And Bhakti Yoga is a, a revered path from the East. And um, a lot of it, it comes about listening to teachings <clears throat> through lectures or Harikata, which is like lectures through advanced Vaishnavas who have been doing this for years, gurus, etc. Um, reading the literature, chanting the Maha Mantra, which is the Hare Krishna uh, Mantra, um, Every day, I um, do that, and uh, and you know, following these four regular principles according to the East, which is no gambling, no illicit sex, no meat eating, and no gam. Uh, and let's see, oh my God, I just blanked. I was gambling. <laughs> Alcohol, maybe? Uh, yeah, no intoxicants. I, I, you know, I, I think it's a Freudian slip that I forget that one because if I if I'm being totally honest, that's probably the one that I've had the most issues with. <laughs> well, I, I know that that was what you grew up with. Um, you, you had an alcoholic parent. And what what do you think that did to you in a creative way? I mean, we know that most people uh, reach adulthood with some kind of damage from childhood. But it does seem like many people who have very difficult childhoods do remarkable creative work when they're older. Do you think that's just a fluke or there's something to it? No, I think that's part and parcel of the creative path. I think art is a a function of dysfunction. Um, I think it's usually it emanates uh, in one's childhood in terms of um, 
trying to distract themselves from the madness, but I, there isn't like a pound for pound artist that I've ever met or known that hadn't had to walk through the fires of a tumultuous youth. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's just, I think it just goes with the territory. I remember reading, there was a book years ago about writers and alcohol and, and how so, so many writers drank. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't drink. Does this mean I can't be a good writer? And then I remembered, but you're a binge eater. You have your own addiction. That'll pass. And I felt a little bit guilty that my addiction wasn't as sexy. You know, it was it was just like, you know, Oreos. But uh, <laughs> and then also the wonderful, almost miracle gift of, of writing when it flows after I had stopped binge eating and just knowing that creativity isn't fueled by substances or habits that one wishes they didn't have. It's really fueled by connection to that light within, even if we don't know that's what's doing it. Mm. Oh my God. Yes. I'm sorry. Your Oreos isn't a sexy addiction. Like me forgetting the regular principle of um, intoxication because I've, I've had struggles with that maybe we should both pick up a good heroin habit for like a month <laughs> or two, just to, just to like, just to homage like the velvet underground at least. Um, since you live in New York and, um, I don't know, it's like, I've struggled with it. You know, it's like the alcoholism I think is, um, a part and parcel of a lot of our use in terms of, um, especially in Irish <laughs> families about, you know, it usually ends up being like a father, but you know, it can be all sorts of different iterations as such. And even people that don't grow up in a, in a household where there's someone who's self-medicating, sometimes we self-medicate ourselves as adults to combat whatever it was. It could be neglect. It could be complicated relationships of being raised by an overt or covert narcissist. I've, I've gone through all iterations of it. And to be fully transparent with you, I've gone through my own addiction. Um, cigarettes or, you know, um, self-worth. Am I ever enough? Even after finishing the golden age, if I'm going to be really honest with you, it's like, you know, while promoting this, it's like you have this idea. And I, I think, I feel confident that the golden age is going to hit the zeitgeist in the way it's destined to when it's destined to, but trusting that and holding myself throughout the process of, of making sure I'm not berating myself or those feelings of you're never enough. Yeah. You know, I talked about this with someone else recently. It's like the idealization of our own tumultuous past is like, once we go through therapy or we do yoga or we eat right or all these things above, it doesn't necessarily heal these wounds they never potentially ever go away and, and i think they come up for a lot of people on holidays they do for myself but i think the goal with it when i'm cutting kind of learning to combat or at least face similar to how you said about like the oreos that this is like uh, this is like i'm nurturing some sort of um indulgence from really getting peaceful and soft with ourselves is these wounds potentially won't ever go away. I think it's about learning to build a different relationship with them so that we're not self-medicating by proxy as having to deal with the confrontational like um, pains from being a child and having to put the pieces back together. So that's kind of been my new mantra lately in terms of 
it, rather than trying to think like, how do I eradicate this from ever plaguing me? It's like, oh, they're going to show up once in a while. And it's how you address it when they show up while keeping a regimented practice to stay steady. And, and what you said earlier about why so many artists come about from these dysfunctional homes and it being a, a function of one's dysfunction, I think creating and even chanting for me within the devotional practice, it's like it's a way to distract that mind on some level that is wounded. You know, I think a lot of people create to create some beauty and have that playful sense of self in a way that perhaps some of the youth was taken from them. So I think the key I'm moving forward to these days is these things, almost like a devil on your shoulder, they're going to come up from time to time because when you go through these wounds and anarthas from your past, it's not like you can just like <laughs> go to therapy, which I've done for years. And and it's been it was a wildly immensely helpful and and all these different things are eating well. It's like you can do everything under the sun to address these things, but I think it's being really present and how you react and treat and care and really nurture that young child or sense of self when these arise mm -hmm. you know and, and you do such a beautiful job of that in the film because i think it, it's a very richly textured film i mean it the music is wonderful it has these great funny moments for anybody who's who's been at all into yoga or any of that they're kind of private jokes that are wonderful but but much more than that, and on a much deeper level, I think you speak to anybody who has ever been hurt, which is mm. pretty much everybody who's ever walked on the planet. So, so you're doing good. <laughs> no, I appreciate <laughs> I that. You, you accomplished that in the film. Now, part of the film, as we said mm. in the introduction, you shot in India. Mm. And, oh, my gosh, some of those scenes, they're, they're so rich and India of course is so visual and so tactile and so olfactory and so every kind of sense mm. there is so tell us about shooting in India yeah wow yeah I think I, I started by shooting the first test footage there before making the golden age proper to see if this was because I was I went to Vrindavan India just on the knowledge of reading Srila Prabhupada's books and that was the, you know, where all the pastimes for Radha and Krishna took place. So I wanted to go there to make sure, if I'm going to make this project, I want to make sure that I'm in this for the long haul and this isn't some like new devotional spin I'm entertaining that I'm going to drop in two years, you know? So I went there and shot test footage and I was just so impressed with it all and my hankering for wanting to learn more about the teachings and knew that this was my path. Um came into purview after that first test shoot. And, you know, India is just like a beautiful template. I, I, I really, you know, the whole culture revolves around these traditions and certain aspects, bhakti and this lineage of gurus and Radha and Krishna and all the pastimes and the texts and the Srimad Bhagavatams and the, uh, the Bhagavad Gita and all these different stories. And there's so much magnanimity in each city where there's temples that are... Um, designed and have been there historically for you know hundreds of years and much longer that resonate with the teachings themselves so it's like their diet and their family life and their devotional practice and 
and um, the holidays, it's all kind of revolved around these teachings, which I found to be the most beautiful aspect, as well as everybody just being so nurturing and not wanting to take me into their home and feed me. You know, I get into the book, and I talked about that first story where I went to the Holy Dham Vrindavan, and, and I met this small boy who I've since become like brothers with and watched him grow up, and he became my guide. And it was almost like at a time where my family had completely dissolved. I was feeling really alone, and I had this young boy who since become like family in a way my own family hasn't. Um, I've been close to him, and I look at him as my own blood brother. So it's like it felt like Krishna was like aligning me with all these people in India that helped serve me so deeply. And and one other thing I just wanted to say real quick, in terms of like the script in relation to India and in relation to these teachings, I wrote about a story that was semi-autobiographical about a Westerner who wanted to let go of this old stuff from his past to make room for his devotional future because I knew that this was where I was headed. And I can be a very tricky person in terms of like even when i know what's best for me whether it's those oreos you ate or the cigarettes that i was smoking i knew that this was all coming to an end and i knew where i was headed so if i didn't write this script and corner myself into where i knew i was going and since discovered as i was making the film i would have easily wiggled out of this and gone back to my material ways but i i kind of gut checked myself that i'm going to change my life and I'm going to make sure and ensure via myself as an artist that I don't wiggle out of it. So India really helped foster that communion so that I didn't wiggle out and just say, no, you know what, and to go on to some other path, you know, because I think there's a, there's a tendency in our culture now where there's so many different devotional paths and this form of yoga and this guru and this thing and that. And it's like, I knew this is where I was headed, even if it was wildly uncomfortable and still is at times to fully embrace um, the magnanimity, the lore and the austerities of it. I wanted to corner myself so I wouldn't, you know, just check out. So you, you talked about these wonderful people and their diet and all that. And yet this is Main Street Vegan. and <laughs> Most of my listeners are vegan and mm. they're thinking, yeah, but what about the dairy? Mm. what what do you do with that well it's different in the east than it is here because the way the cows are treated which is you know the cows the sacred animal there and uh you know it's a dear consort of krishna so the dairy approach to the east is much different than it is here in the west because the dairy that we're receiving more often than not is cruelly or inhumanely um produced but there, the cows are treated with such reverence, and lots of people, as part of the diet, have ghee and milk and cheese in their diet because the cows are of a, of a different sort of cyclical nature in terms of how they're honored. So, may, I, so yeah. May I argue with you? Sure. Uh, and, and thank you, although I, I would have anyway, just on behalf of the cows, um, I believe that this is not altogether correct, having also uh, spent uh, time in India myself. India is, is the biggest importer of, of leather in the world. It's only legal to kill a cow in India in two states, but when they can no longer produce milk, they're let out to wander, and these bandits from the other mm. states come and get them and take them to slaughter they're they're hit by cars they they eat pl- 
plastic. There was one story that that I know of as as true because a, a dear friend witnessed this of a temple that specifically worshipped the Holy Mother cow, and they would go in and you know pour milk on the statues and you know do all the reverential things for the cow, and a cow was near death in front of the temple, an actual living cow. And they just walked around her. Mm. So, you know, I think there's a lot about this cow thing and this dairy thing that that it's just it's got to be out there. And it's so hard, you know, for for an American to be saying, oh, well, you guys aren't doing it right because Lord knows we're not doing it right either. Mm-hmm. But uh, I know veganism is growing in India, but there's there's a lot of culture there, you mm-hmm. know. There's Krishna and the butter. <laughs> mm-hmm. The butter thief, Vishalananda, and that's my spiritual name. But it's like I was more out referring in terms of my um, experience there in terms of some of these holier places where I don't denounce that these same atrocities happen in aspects of India like they do in the United States. So I'm not trying to refute that. And you're totally correct on all that. I'm sure more so that you're knowledgeable about that probably than even I am. I'm just talking about some of these destinations I've gone to where they're treated with more of a sacred capacity that I resonate with that for those that choose to uh, eat dairy. Personally, I I, uh, cut dairy out of my diet because my body doesn't seem to respond to it very well. And uh, learning more about what you mentioned as well, I just, uh, I've seen them handled in a different capacity. But, you know, it goes back to that conversation about in the material world, like, how we're living in this iron age and everything is polluted. Yes, there are cows that are in plastic or are treated inhumanely of all across the world, but um, you know, I, I don't have a solution for it other than just to espouse that being nonviolent to all sentient beings is really like the barometer that trumps all of it, you know, and, and I think that that is catching on all around the world and, and it's and it's not something that necessarily happens overnight unfortunately but um i think that wave is spreading i, I think that's kind of more where my philosophy stems from the most yeah because it seems to me that being vegan in in a context of of the Hare krishna movement in in the yoga world is a little bit like being vegetarian or vegan uh in yeah. a christian community and in, in a jewish community it, it's just I, it's it's just takes things a little bit further than mm-hmm. uh, than other people do it. I think that's a little bit hard in a in a spiritual community because it's almost like we're saying we have set ourselves apart from you know this like secular world and certainly not completely, but you know we we have decided to be people of faith which already makes us a little bit weird. But now <laughs> in that community, I'm going to do this thing with my diet. That's hard for, I think, people to, you know, not not feel like a double outcast sometimes. Mm, I relate. I relate. I think those austerities can seem very extreme and are on some level. And I think, um, you know, a lot of it is just trying to live a diet that's ahimsa and from my lineage is offering your food to Radha and Krishna before consuming it and eating foods that are accepted by Krishna. And I, I understand that that seems very proselytizing to those in the West. It even does to myself at times or in the past, but you know, I'm starting to realize there's, um, there's a benefit to eating simply and wholly. And, um, instead of kind of like, uh, kind of satiating that rapacious tongue that I always seems to get me in trouble. Oh, 
Yeah, for sure. That's a that's a good one. It likes Oreos too. Oh, <laughs> uh, I see. You do have a simpler website, justinconnor.com. How easy is that? So uh-huh. another place to find out about this remarkable man and his absolutely wonderful work. So were you always a musician or is that something you came to in adulthood? I played a little bit as a child and I started picking up a little bit in college, but I came to L.A. pursuing acting and did that for a while. And I just wanted to speak about themes of more substance. So I started writing the script. But before I wrote the script, I released my first album, just started playing around on piano and said, I want to kind of do this music thing, released that album. And then when I was doing the script, I was like, how can I adjoin music with the script? And maybe the songs can tell part of the story like a scene does. But but I hate lip syncing. Let's not lip sync. Let's do it real. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's going to be so hard filming this. But and that was very challenging filming it. But I wanted everything to be absolutely real in the film. So you were kind of confused. Is this really happening or what? And I had to think about how I looked in conjunction of how the arc of the songs told as well as the look of myself and aging in it. So um, I love music now. And it's one of those things that I'm doing a lot of painting and drawing these days and music, just kind of more autonomous art because it really uh, making a film is hard. So, you know, it's a lot of money, a lot of people and it. And um I, but music, it's like I could go on and on for days about it. It's just um, if it, so it feeds my soul, and I think it has the biggest potency to affect societal devotional change. So I'm just going to keep pounding the pavement with that. Mm, I think you're right. Sometimes I think that during the pandemic, some of the best evenings my husband and I have ever spent have just been going on YouTube and trading off. This is one of my favorite songs. Well, this is one of mine. (laughs) I think that's good. And it's like the thing that's interesting about music versus making a film that was musical in the sense of the golden age is when you listen to a song, you can create your own arc and visual journey that's of your own imagination of what the song means, where it's taking you, what it's absolving, what it's healing, what it's inspiring you to think about. And there's something about that that I think I will never lose in terms of the potency of music versus um, film these days that might want to instruct you as to where the arc of the story is going. You can have your own arc with songs and artists, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's nothing to scoff at. <laughs> Oh, Justin, I'm just crazy about you. I'm so happy that we met. You know, you can make friends during a pandemic. And <laughs> we've done that. So everybody, the golf age, <laughs> justinconnor.com. Um, maybe do a, one of those watch parties. If you got some friends who are into music and into kind of some yoga philosophy, get together, watch the film, talk about it. Invite me. I'll come. I'm ready. I'm ready to watch it. I'll be right with you too. I'll bring, I'll bring the popcorn. Do that. Thank you so much, Justin Connor. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for always being there for us. And Jeff, our fabulous engineer. And to each and every one of you, thank you so much for listening. God bless. Eat your veggies. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.